Welcome to the Propaganda Report. I'm Monica Perez, here with my co-host, Brad Binkley. Our guest today is an archaeologist, scholar, and author of the fascinating book, Forbidden Archaeology, The Hidden History of the Human Race, and of numerous works on Hindu spirituality, among other subjects. His research and opinions are often mind-blowing, and I can't think of anyone whose unique viewpoint I would rather solicit in these mind-blowing times than the one and only Michael Cremo. Welcome, Michael, and thank you so much for being here. Great to be with you and all your listeners. Thank you so much. And I, I was hoping that we could start with a little bit of an overview of your background and kind of how you, um, I, I feel like your work and your spiritual journey are intertwined. And I actually, maybe this is, I, I wonder if this is true or not, that you became interested in Hinduism back in the day. Somebody gave you something at a Grateful Dead concert, maybe? Is that possible? My house is full of deadheads, so had, yeah. to, had to ask that question. <laughs> yeah, but I just, yeah, I'd like to hear about your spiritual journey a little bit and how you got into this um, as, your, as your life's work. Oh, okay, great. Well, I, I think that has maybe something to do with things I may have done in past lives. Of course, that takes us to a, a whole different mind-blowing topic. But, <laughs> but uh, in this in this lifetime, I think one of the significant elements for me is that I was born in a military family. Uh, my father was uh, a navigator for part of his military career in the Air Force. And in the latter part of it, he was involved in intelligence. He was an intelligence officer for the United States Air Force. And when I was growing up and living in different countries, because that's a, another feature of military life, you move around a lot. Every, so was this during a war? Was it during Korea or during Vietnam or was it just? Uh, this was during, you could say, the pre-Vietnam years. Yeah. I think we had a presence in Vietnam. I mean, I'm talking about maybe 1960, 61, 62, basically the Kennedy era. And, you know, I kind of grew up among people involved in the intelligence services or the diplomatic service. And that taught me a couple of things. First of all, the, all the moving around meant I got exposed to a lot of different cultures and worldviews. Uh, and among the different worldviews that I got exposed to, the spiritual worldview of ancient India, you know, yoga and meditation and things like that were, uh, they, they interested me a, a great bit. And then also another thing I picked up is that there are things going on in the world that a lot of people aren't aware of. Uh, you get that from being brought up in the environment that I was uh, brought up in. So that led me to question different things. Now, as, as you mentioned, uh, uh, a little bit later on in, in my life, I was at a, a Grateful Dead concert, and I ran into a 
member of the Hare Krishna movement, actually. I didn't know, but uh, that that was uh, who I encountered, and I received from them a copy of Bhagavad Gita, which is one of the most famous spiritual texts of ancient India. And I, I, I was interested in, in those things, so I, I was very happy to receive it. And I read it, and uh, I took advantage of an offer in the book to receive a, a book catalog. And I got more of the uh, ancient texts from India. And in them, I read accounts of human civilizations, human populations that have existed on Earth for many millions of years. And this was something different than I'd heard from any of my teachers in high school or university. Uh, the, the, the standard idea is that humans like us first appeared less than 300,000 years ago, they say today. At, at that time, in the 1960s, they were thinking maybe about 40,000 years. But even today, although they accept a, a longer human presence, it's nowhere near millions of years. So I, I had to think, well, uh, is that, are these accounts of extreme human antiquity, are they some mythological invention or is there perhaps some factual basis for it? And that's what got me looking into the history of archaeology. And I, I thought, okay, let me look in today's textbooks. You know, you look in today's textbooks, you only see the evidence that supports the now dominant theories. But I decided, okay, let me look beyond the textbooks. Because I knew, you know, from life experience that sometimes you don't get all the facts, all the information in those kinds of publications. So I thought, let me look at the original scientific reports. And I started digging into them, looking into the old scientific publications from the time of Darwin in the mid-19th century, all the way up to the present. And when I did that, I found many reports by archaeologists, geologists, other scientists who are digging into the earth, finding human bones, human artifacts, far older than the time periods allowed by the mainstream scientific community, in some cases going back many millions of years. So uh, I collected those reports in the book Forbidden Archaeology, and it kind of became a career for me. So when uh, one of the th things I've heard you talk about is the knowledge filter. It's basically, and I, and I always say this, like a lot of times I've observed that academics rise to the pinnacle of academia because they can really, the way I put it is they really grasp the existing paradigm. They can really just, they can fit everything into the existing paradigm rather than people who are seeking the truth or 
our thought leaders or try to understand some of the anomalies without having to shoehorn them into a theory. And a lot of these paradigms are just theories, the theory of evolution, Big Bang is a theory. Germ theory is still just a theory, which to me, the longer it is a theory, the less they are able to prove it or they, they've had a lot of time to prove some of these things. And not only do they not really open their minds to that, it's almost a self-fulfilling prophecy because if they reject all anomalous facts or evidence, then there's no reason to question the theory because it's it's almost a tautology. Like the only thing they think is valid is stuff that promotes the theory. And it sounds like there were plenty of things that even from the early days fell outside of the proposed theory, the proposed paradigm. How and when or why do you think that the facts kind of got curated to support one theory or another so that they would get locked in? Well, it's, you know, it's a very interesting question. Um, it, when I looked at the whole history of archaeology, that kind of question that you're asking about knowledge filtration or fitting everything into the standard paradigm uh, occurred to me also. And what I found is, is this. In the mid-19th century, actually in 1859, Charles Darwin published his uh, revolutionary work, The Origin of Species, which introduced the idea that the varieties of living things that we see around us today have evolved from some common ancestor, you know, step by step by a process of gradual evolution. And as far as human beings are concerned, scientists immediately began to speak, well, who would be our ancestor? And the, they concluded, well, it must have been some creature somewhat like you know, the living apes and monkeys, not exactly, but in that, in that general category of ape or monkey. So they immediately began searching for evidence for a missing link between anatomically modern humans like us and some primitive ape-like ancestor now, the problem is, there were two problems, actually. First, they didn't have any timeline set up. So they didn't have any expectations of how old this missing link should be, if there was one. And second, when scientists, archaeologists, geologists, and other scientists started digging and looking for this human ancestor, they weren't finding evidence of a missing link. They were finding evidence that humans like us were existing millions of years ago. You know, you have the discoveries of the Italian geologist Giuseppe Ragazzoni finding human bones in Italy, northern Italy, uh, four or five million years old. You have 
Carlos Ribeiro in Portugal, a geologist there, finding artifacts of the kind normally attributed to humans like us in layers of rock 20 million years old. So you had many discoveries like that being made in the 1860s, the 1880s, the 1890s. And then at the end of the 19th century, in about 1894, a Dutch researcher named Eugene Dubois found some fossils in Java at a place called Trino, it's in the area of the current country of Indonesia, Southeast Asia. So he found there a skull bone that was very primitive and a femur or thigh bone that was very uh, human-like. He put the, them together and he, he hypothesized this is the Java ape man, the missing link, half human, half ape. That it, and it was about 800,000 years old. That was the age of the formation at which it was found. So this became accepted by the scientific community. Okay, you've got your missing link at 800,000 years that means anything human, anatomically modern human, has to be after that. So then it became a problem for them. What are we going to do with all this evidence that had accumulated in the previous 40 years or 50 years that showed humans were existing millions of years ago? That had to be rejected dismissed, forgotten, and it, it has been completely forgotten, except for some individuals like me who are aware of this history and knowledge filtration that's gone on. So anytime anything that is remotely human that has been found after Java man, uh, it's been interpreted in such a way, as you were saying, Monica, to fit the current paradigm. Uh, I'll give an example. Just a couple of years ago, scientists in, uh, at Ulduvai Gorge, which is uh, a location in the country of Tanzania and East Africa, where many important discoveries have been made, you know, they found a finger bone seems like a, an insignificant thing, but you know, they found it in layers of rock 1,800,000 years old. And they carefully measured it. They compared the measurements to the measurements of the same finger bone in apes and monkeys, different species of alleged human ancestors like Australopithecus and Homo habilis. And they, found, they also compared it to anatomically modern human finger bones. And they found it fit in the modern human group, Homo sapiens. But in their scientific report, they said, we can't call it Homo sapiens because of its age. 
1,800,000 years. So they, they just said that. And they think, well, it must have been some other type of being that, that just happened to have finger bones just like ours. So it, it's, like you say, a process of knowledge filtration, Monica. Well, I'm, I'm curious about the process of archaeological discovery. I, I've actually heard, this is jumping the gun, but that no primitive cultures or whatever non-European modern cultures prior to Darwin ever had any artifacts that we would consider a dinosaur. So like, it's like they look, we're looking for dinosaurs and they found, I know that's really probably far down the rabbit hole, but I was wondering if you were going to, yeah, I want to get to, I want to get to that eventually, but that's just, <laughs> it's not really important, but, but I just, I wonder if some of these, if there was any archeological record of human beings before they actually were going out to try to prove Darwin's theories, if they, if they even had that, because for me, I've always just had this gut feeling and I've recently seen it demonstrated that truly Darwinian Darwinism as the origin of species is it mathematically impossible. I think like it just, I, you'd have to really walk me through the math of how it would be possible for that to happen randomly and cumulatively over time to, to get us from, um, you know, for the, whatever our common ancestor with the whale is or whatever, you know, like it's just, it's too much for me to get my mind around. And um, so I'm suspicious of a lot of those transitional human forms that they talk about. Like, I actually wonder if there are really mm, a whole string of different humanoids that, um, that kind of make you make it look like there's a progression. And I've actually read a few articles over the past five years or so that have um, clarified or debunked some of those finds as actually being of the same species as modern humans and just having either diseases or arthritis or just natural variations. So I'm not really a huge believer in some of the archaeological record that they put. Not only do they, in my opinion, leave some of the anomalous stuff out, I think they over-interpret some other things to keep them in. Is that like completely those are like five different questions but are those is that completely beyond the realm of what you would consider possible or you know do you how much faith do you have in the rest of the archaeological well evidence monica i agree with you entirely uh, i think when you actually look at the complete archaeological record and not just what you see in the textbooks today but you include the evidence that's been filtered out because it contradicts this picture the real picture that emerges is not one of evolution of the modern human type from some primitive, more ape-like human ancestors, what emerges is a picture of coexistence of different types of beings. Yes, some apes and monkeys did live millions of years ago, but alongside them, humans like us were existing. And I would also say, yes, some beings that we would call ape men or some similar word 
they also existed. <laughs> but they were coexisting with humans like us and apes and monkeys. And this gets you into a controversial topic, another controversial topic, the existence of Sasquatch and Bigfoot and the Yeti and things like that. In other words, creatures that ha apparently have some human-like intelligence, but ape-like bodies that still exist in remote areas of uh, even the United States and other wilderness areas in different countries around the world. So Sasquatch-like so, beings exist in other areas of the world, you're saying? Yeah, they have different names for them. Like in Yeti? Central Asia, they call yeah. them the Almas. In the Himalayas, they call them the Yeti. In Indonesia, they have them. They have a name in one of the Indonesian languages for them, which slips my mind at the present moment. But, uh, yeah, there's quite a bit of evidence in China. They've reported well uh, neanderthal genes to the extent that the genes reflect this correctly their genetic studies that they say neanderthals definitely existed side by side with with modern humans you can actually pull out like genetically the difference and they could interbreed so i don't know how how much they you could really call that a totally different species but they do say there's twice as much um, neanderthal genetic evidence in asian people um than in european people and there's none in sub-saharan african people i i believe i've read that and if you get 23 in me it'll tell you that you have like a certain percentage of neanderthal genes which is just really funny to me and then they but yes they'll completely deny this stuff so so there so there's more in the hidden record than even just the the you're saying that this can that this is kind of hiding this as true even today yeah and and what, what why are they doing that who is doing that and how are they getting it done to actually suppress this information well you know it's this knowledge filtering process i think can operate in many different ways in one way you could say well, uh, the scientists who are involved in it, they don't think that, okay, I'm hiding evidence that is actually true, that contradicts my theory, and I'm hiding it because I don't want people to see it because then they won't believe in my theory anymore right. and I'll won't get my grant money. I, you know, the textbooks will have to be rewritten. That's uh, one way that some people imagine it, but the, the scientist who's involved in doing it may just think, uh, okay, I'm just being a responsible scientist. This is what I've learned from people that I respect who, you know, are my professors or teachers, and they seem like good people. And, you know, they've explained everything. And, you know, uh, as far as these anomalies go, uh, I, 
you know, something's got to be wrong with him. I may not know, but I'm sure if I asked my colleague down the hall, he'd be able to explain exactly what's wrong with these things. So, so for many of them, they don't think they're involved in some conspiracy to suppress true knowledge, which, which if known would cause people to disbelieve in their, their theories. They just think, I'm just doing my job as a scientist, as a responsible scientist, standing up for what they call the science. But uh, if they're honest about it, they'll admit that what they call the science is merely, maybe not merely, but it is just the consensus of the group of people who consider themselves to be authorities in this specific branch of knowledge and that it's changed in the past and it will change in the future, sometimes in some radical ways. If they admit that, then okay, fine. We're just getting the current view of the current bunch of experts. And how do you become an expert? Well, you have to be designated an expert by another one. <laughs> you know, so it's kind of like a self-selecting, yeah. self-selecting group. You put on yeah. a lab coat, carry a clipboard, like Edward Bernays said. <laughs> Yeah. So, uh, well, and you have to get the buy in of the people who are in the power structure, which obviously are serving the existing paradigm. So, how do you change it? And I think, I think if you go back and look at Darwin from the beginning, I there were political and social. I, I have a book, it's like a little pot boiler. It's called The Making of the Modern Mind. And it's got mm. like, oh, you, you're familiar? It's like 12 of the, of the, pivotal moments and people that shaped our modern perception of things, including I think maybe Dewey for education and Newton and Darwin was one of them. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that said in there was you, you know, if you come out with this theory, it's really going to upend religion, politics, society, all of that. And Darwin apparently said that he understood that and he wasn't comfortable with it. And, yada yada but still they this was put forward and it was promoted and in my mind that had to have been because it was a desired political or social change from the people at that time and if you look at Lamarck who was kind of competing he he his theory I think stands up better to epigenetics which is like the newer way of looking at things mm -hmm. and but it it left the door open for some kind of subcellular intelligence or greater mechanism they hadn't yet found out where where the adaptation to the environment was a function of the organism uh, responding to stimulus from the environment. And actually, there was a guy, Paul Kammerer, in a book, um, The Tale of the Midwife Toad or The Case of the Midwife Toad, where in like only 10 generations, he demonstrated Lamarckian evolution. And then I think he was suicided. But so so I agree with you that there's there's that just natural what I call like the glass ceiling of thought, like this natural 
Um, I think this happened with connecting the AIDS virus, uh, HIV with the AIDS virus. Carrie Mullis is the the Nobel Prize winner for the PCR test. And Peter Jewsberg, who was a big Berkeley professor, said they could actually never find the original study that connected a virus with AIDS. But absolutely, the entire industry was based on the assumption that that study did exist. And any AIDS researcher you talk to, none of them even questioned for a moment that that was true. So, so once it's established, I think that's true that you can assume that most people are just doing their little job in their box. But there, I, I think, and maybe you can, I'm curious to know your opinion, that there's, you know, these forces of power and politics and sociology and the elites maybe or whatever, maybe it's evil, maybe it's something even more, um, maybe it's interdimensional, I don't know, but where they, they shape the paradigm intentionally knowing that it's not really true. Do you, do you think about that kind of thing? Well, I, I, I think there's an element of that, yes. One thing that you mentioned, of course, is that you know, there was Darwin and there was Lamarck. They were both scientists, so there were some differences of opinion in the scientific community. And you mentioned politics, and here's where I think it gets uh, a little bit controversial. Even today in the scientific community, there can be different opinions about different topics, whether it's the one you were mentioning or whether it's evolution in general. There is some diversity of opinion. There may, however, be a majority opinion. And what sometimes happens is that that majority or the leader leadership of that majority group will convince government to impose that majority view on everyone else in the society. In other words, they have no choice. If you're going to go to the public tax supported schools, you've got to read these textbooks. Or if you get the research money. Or to get the research money or the appointment to a professorship at a university or in a hired by a research institute or a company, uh, you know, a corporation. Uh, so in, it's like in America, for example, you know, we've got history books. So it's a majority Christian country. So you could say, well, in the textbooks in school, we should only mention the Christian religion. We could even pick one of the many Christian religions and say, we're, we've got the most followers. So that is the only thing that's going to be in the textbooks. We wouldn't tolerate it. We say, no, 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 no. There's people here. There's people who are Hindu. There are people who are Islamic. There are people who are Buddhist. There are Jewish people. There are there are all kinds of. We have freedom of religion. You can't do that. But we don't apply that same critical faculty to science. That even though there may be majority and minority opinions in science, 
you can never tell who the ones that's now in the minority may be the majority in a few years because they are still just theories these things yeah well th that's another whole discussion what a theory <laughs> is and you know but whatever it is a theory or a viewpoint or a paradigm whatever whatever we want to call it you know it just because something's in a minority doesn't mean that you give the majority an exclusive monopoly in the education system and the government. It's, uh, uh, I think, the proper solution in a country that considers itself to be democratic is that it should be representative. Okay say, take textbooks of biology. You could say, okay, today, most biologists accept the Darwinian theory of evolution. So give them the most pages in the textbook, the most classroom time, but it should also be part of the education system that students should learn. There are alternatives that are being presented by members of the scientific community. They're not in the majority, they're in a minority, but this is what their views are. And you present it not as in the current system. Well, we scientists believe this, and there are a few crazy nuts who <laughs> believe that. You know, just neutrally and objectively say, okay, but there's a group of intelligent design theorists, for example, who are scientists who, and give the reasons why they say they don't agree with the current theories and why they're proposing an alternative. And then let students make up their own minds about that. Uh, well, I, I think that's the, the proper way to go about things in a society that considers itself democratic. Well, we're, uh, we're going in the opposite direction. I was just looking for the language that I got from YouTube. They took me, they struck our last couple of videos. And the reason they said that our videos were taken down and we're really in punishment over there is that we, we expressed views on the current health crisis that were different from the consensus view. So it wasn't even that they said it was wrong. It's that it was di different from the consent consensus view and therefore it has to be totally suppressed. Yeah. And, and that's in the, that's in the entire public arena. I mean that we're going in the opposite direction. I think that's where the lie is sometimes, too, is that it is the consensus view or that it is the majority opinion. People, It's the spiral of silence that I know we've talked about that a little bit, where you have an opinion that you believe is the minority opinion. And most other people share that opinion, but also believe it to be the minority opinion. So they all remain silent, allowing the what they believe to be the majority opinion, which actually is not to be perceived that way. And I, I think that people in control, they, they can, they can manipulate things with very few people being in the know in that way is they can create this self censorship because people believe they're in the minority when they're actually in 
uh, maybe a silent majority, or it's a little bit more even maybe when it comes to some of the scientific theories. And the more they yeah. suppress it, the more that majority is the right. only thing people are even exposed to. Yeah, I, I, I think that adds uh, another dimension to it, definitely. So uh, hence the necessity for people to speak out. Also, I, I've been quite surprised, I mean, just in terms of my general approach to scientific questions, to see that, okay, the supporters of the current general paradigm, which is what I would call materialistic, you know, that matter functioning according to known physical laws can explain everything in the universe, all the complexity that, that we observe around us, consciousness, it can all be explained by matter operating according to uh, the laws of physics as they're understood today. Uh, I don't think that's true. I, I rather accept the consciousness-based universe, but which would involve, you know, phenomenon that aren't part of the modern scientific paradigm. You know, like a conscious self that can exist apart from the body, higher well, that, intelligence. I really want to understand anyone and particularly your opinion on the nature of consciousness i mean i cannot ironically uh get my mind around it i simply can't conceive of how it's possible that i have awareness that is centered like behind my eyeballs um and i would say i can't imagine how that could exist without eyeballs but I can't imagine how it exists with eyeballs. So when the scientific community or the general consensus is that we are just these meat machines and once they turn off, all the functioning turns off and consciousness goes along with it, I don't, I don't even know if they have an explanation for how consciousness even arises in the presence of the material world. I just can't get my mind around it. Can you articulate a little bit how you view the true nature of consciousness? Uh, it's the most fundamental fact of our existence. We wouldn't be having this conversation if I weren't conscious, you weren't conscious, Brad conscious, listeners conscious. We wouldn't be having this kind of interaction. So it's not something that requires belief it's, it's the most real fact of our existence and in the scientific world there there may be individual scientists or small groups of scientists who are proposing different uh, theories of how consciousness can arise from matter but there's no general consensus on exactly how it happened there is a general consensus that somehow or other it did happen because otherwise their whole structure would fall apart and i'm on the side of those who say that consciousness is something different from matter it's not produced by matter it has its own independent existence and that means 
the individual conscious personal self can exist apart from the brain, apart from the body, apart from the eyeballs, as you call them, <laughs> which are which to me are just an instrument that the conscious self, which has its own uh, perceptual abilities, makes use of in the world of matter. So I believe that originally we're beings of pure consciousness uh, and somehow or other we've come into this world of matter and in the world of matter we need vehicles to function here and what we call these bodies are those vehicles be a plant a plant vehicle an animal vehicle a human vehicle but originally we're not in these what you call meat machines, which is a pretty graphic way of putting it. But uh, I mean, do you think we can transcend it in this life and return to it without dying if you're like very good at understanding yeah. it? Yeah, well, that's the the purpose of so many spiritual disciplines, different types of yoga, meditation, contemplation, prayer, every faith tradition has yeah even catholicism has by location for some some extremely holy people are have the gift of by location that can be in two places at once that's a catholic premise so yeah it's a, it is really pervasive in the religion that is interesting how much is similar across religions that can't have had much communication in their founding but one thing that's very different is that your spiritual foundation is that um, holds that human beings have existed in this form for millions of years. And Christianity holds that some people think that there's, it's a young earth, that it isn't very old at all. The whole earth isn't old and that you can look at the old Testament and trace back to, you know, the generations and it can't possibly, if that's literally true, it can't possibly be, four million well, years to mitochondrial eve well here's here's what i have to say about that is that if we look at that view and the vedic view the thing they have in common is that human beings have been existing since the beginning you know god created adam and eve in the beginning and then the whole history of the earth comes after after that, you know, you've got the pre-flood and post-flood worlds. And whether you think that that time period, you know, the history of the world lasts for uh, a few thousand years or a few billion years or many millions of years, human beings have been around since the beginning and they didn't evolve from apes and monkeys. So on that basis, I've been able to establish a pretty good relationship with people who have these young earth views. I mean, we may disagree about the age of the earth, but, but at least we agree that humans have been around since the beginning. And I think that's kind of, 
logical and a consciousness-based universe. Because, say like if we send a space, space station into orbit around the Earth, and uh, we don't just hope that the chemicals in the atmosphere of inside the space station will form some first living thing that will evolve and eventually become an astronaut and use all the instrumentation in the space station. Now you send the space station up because you're going to put astronauts yeah. there yeah. to use it for a purpose. So I think this universe that we live in is actually a kind of an educational institution yes, where we're I meant agree. to discover our real nature and because we're so we're so profoundly different and I don't I I don't know if you agree with this but we're so different from the animals when it comes to consciousness uh I would say the but, animals also have consciousness but more I limited feel like it's it's just not it's like of a different it's categorically different kind of like angels you know like there's almost like a a hierarchy of complexity i think you're right about that you're absolutely right about that but it, here's a way that i think about it sometimes and you can Tell me what you think about it. It's like I'm uh, a human being. I can ride in different vehicles. Like I, if I ride on a bicycle, I can go so fast. If I get on a motorcycle, you can go faster. I get in a boat, I can go across the lake. If I get in a submarine, I can go under the water. If I get in an airplane, I can fly in the sky. If I get on one of these uh, spacecraft being set up by our billionaire friends, <laughs> I can go into outer space for a few moments anyways. To the edge of outer space. <laughs> the, edge, the, edge, the edge of outer space. A very interestingly so, shaped craft. I'm the same person, but according to the vehicle that I'm in, I can operate in a different way. So I, I would say the same conscious self may be in the body of a human being and be able to use all of one's faculties. The, the main one of which is the ability to understand the difference between the conscious self and the bodily vehicle it's temporarily occupying. But uh, I may be in the body of an animal, like a conscious self could go into the body of a dog, but then it'll be limited to what that body and brain of a dog can do. Or one might be elevated to the position of, a, of, of an angel and be able to function in, in that, that category. Do you, or, so this speaks to the Hindu belief in reincarnation. Yes. Right? And when, can you 
clarify for me how how it works and the the mystery for me is how people who have they seem to have a very high level of functionality their spaceships are are super fine and they are born into positions of um, maybe wealth they translate into power and then domination and i just i find it confusing that that or, i would consider that like a low form of life but in the highest vehicle how does that how does that comport with kind of like uh justice um i mean i just don't know how it works okay i'm sure you do <laughs> Well, I can explain some principles, but it's, you know, like you were saying, we notice there's a variety in the types of situations in which human beings find themselves. Uh, one could be born in a, a very wealthy family, a very good and moral family, or you know one could be born in a wealthy family of some dictator of some country that's doing terrible things to the people of that country i mean there are a lot of different situations in which a, a conscious self could be born in and one way to explain that is well that's just the luck of the draw like a casino you know you get born in a nice situation or a bad situation it's just the way things are it's just luck the concept of reincarnation as i understand it is based on a different principle uh, which is that how you behave in one life will determine what your next life will be the ultimate goal being to realize oneself as an eternal conscious individual being with a relationship with a supreme conscious intelligent personal being that's the ultimate then that's a beyond a personal being outside yourself, not yeah. just the oneness? Okay. Yeah, because we notice that consciousness and any of its manifestations that we're familiar with is always individual and personal, in addition to being conscious. Like, I have my personality and consciousness. It's individual. I know it. You have yours. Brad has his. Yeah, we have some kind of unity in that we're all of the same category, but we're not the same individual. We're not the same person. There's diversity as well as unity. So that's a. I guess I just wonder how, if there is progression like that, how how those who appear to have progressed beyond my station, if you're looking at it like that, could be such evil shits 
that then, you know, they should go back and be cockroaches after. I mean, after these past two years, looking at how some of the people who are in the most exalted positions have treated people in the lowest position, I consider that to be bad behavior. And I just, I feel like, was that, are the, didn't those people have a better last life than I did? I'm not, I'm not trying to be argumentative. I'm really just trying to get my mind around it. No, it's, uh, it has to do with the, the laws of karma. And it takes into account not just what one has done in one life, but for perhaps many oh. hundreds or thousands or millions of lives. It's not strictly so linear. It's not strictly linear. So it depends on one's, yeah, there's a Sanskrit word, karma which has entered into the popular vocabulary, you know, like, oh, well, that's just your karma, you know, but, but that principle is there, karma, one's activities in one's previous lifetimes get stored up in, uh, this is, again, taking it to another level of understanding. There's not just the material, gross material body and the conscious self or soul, but there's a, a subtle mental body in which are stored all of our activities that we've done. And it's like you have a, a reservoir of karma when the soul or the conscious self leaves the body, it's accompanied by its mental body. And according to the condition of the mental body, you get another gross physical body. So that person, and normally people aren't all good or all bad. Some you might say are totally evil. <laughs> some totally good but most 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 of us fall into some intermediate category where we've done some good things and we've also made some mistakes we've done some bad things for, for which we may or may not be regretful but we do that not just in one lifetime, but in perhaps many millions of lifetimes. Wow. So, and it's all got to be worked out somehow. So it, it may be that because of some fantastically good things that one's done, one is put into uh, a position of opulence, whether it's in terms of... <laughs> aristocracy you know being from a prominent family in a city or a country or a state or being in a wealthy family or a politically influential family or whatever uh, it know, sounds like that might not even be a reward like it could be a reward <laughs> but yeah. if you put it to a family like that based on what i'm hearing that could be something of a, a challenge to see based on whatever the, the past experiences this, this consciousness has had, that it's a test. We're going to give you this power. You're going to have this power. And what are you going to do with it? And how are you going to react to it? 
yeah, you're going to have the temptation to use it for your own benefit at the expense of others. Uh, or you could use it for good, for the benefit of people. That's that choice is is always there but you're absolutely correct for many people the possession of some opulence whether it's in the form of wealth or strength or fame or knowledge hmm. can be a blessing or it can be a curse is is it is there a concept of, I kind of want to get to where we are now. Is there a concept of like a collective karma? Because right now I feel like depending on how you look at it, either things are very, very bad and all those evil people I was describing or mostly evil people are doing terrible things and it's scary and depressing. And on the other hand, some people have observed a kind of great awakening where there's a remnant, a pretty, a pretty sturdy, maybe minority, maybe not even minority of people who are becoming aware of maybe some deeper truths. How do you look at what's happening today? And, it, and, and how does that fold into kind of your big picture view of how things work? Well, the big picture view that I have includes the concept of cyclical time. And we're aware of different time cycles, like the day-night cycle. Usually at night, people sleep, and the daytime, they're up and around. We're also aware of the seasonal cycle. You know, there's winter, in the temperate countries anyways, winter, spring, summer, fall. We do different activities in the different seasons. We dress in different ways, eat different foods, play different sports. So in the Vedic conception, there's a larger cycle. They're called yugas. And there are four of them. And the ancient Romans and Greeks had this idea, too, a golden age, a silver age, a bronze age, an iron age. So similarly, in the Vedic cosmology, there's a cycle of ages. And in this cycle of ages, things become more and more degraded in terms of the consciousness of the people. Like in the first age, everything's all very spiritual. Everybody's living nicely. There are no classes. There's no divisions in society. In the second age, things drop down a little bit. And then in the third age, a little bit further. And then the fourth age, which is the one we're in now, things get really bad in terms of environmental and social disturbance. However, even in such an age, there are always going to be people. There are always two kinds of people in this world. Those are that, that are getting, you could say, moving towards the light, those that are moving towards the dark. You know, getting involved in exploitation, domination, control of other people, of the earth, its resources, you know, dividing people into competing groups and fighting each other for, 
you know, control of resources and power and things like that. Or you've got people that are moving in the other direction, um, trying to understand, you know, I'm a being of pure consciousness, you're a being of pure consciousness. We don't shouldn't be dividing up into so many competing groups. We can satisfy our material necessities and uh, the best way possible and put uh, most of our human energy into developing our consciousness. So even in an age like the present one where the trend is towards the darkness, you may get some, it's like when winter's coming on, you get sometimes what they call Indian summer, a few warm days. You know, like the, the trend is it's getting colder and colder and colder, but in a few days, you may get a really warm period. So you should take advantage of that because what's coming later may be even worse. So, oh my. If, so <laughs> but then eventually the then you know after winter, spring comes and then summer again. So it goes in 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 cycles. And my big picture worldview includes the idea that now we're in uh, an age that is not very favorable towards you know the kinds of values that i personally hold so uh but there is this opportunity now because as as you say it seems to be a time when there's a time of awakening for a lot of people but that may be in response to the opposite thing happening. Not because, well, everybody's doing fine and I just need to break out of my shell of darkness and join the light. It's more or less the opposite, mm -hmm. opposite way in, in this, this age. So that's part of my big picture view. I have two very specific questions for you, but I don't want to keep you over time. Do you have a few extra minutes that I can ask? Oh, you? Sure. Yeah, okay. Time, Monica, sure. Absolutely. Thank you so much. I'm going to let Brad hop because I did say one hour and he's got something else that's scheduled right now. So let me um, say goodbye to Brad and then ask my questions. Very interesting stuff. I really enjoyed it. Sorry, I got to run, but yeah, um, fascinating. Thank you for speaking with us today. See you guys later.